Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. History isn't just a bunch of names and dates and facts. It's the collection of all the stories throughout human history that explain how and why we got here. Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, where we look at the forgotten, neglected, strange, and even counterfactual stories that made our world what it is. I'm your host, Scott Rank. Hi everyone, this is Scott. First of all, apologies. My main microphone is in the shop right now, so I'm using this backup one. So for all those audiophiles out there, well, just do your best to listen through on the speaker, and I promise things will be regular soon in another episode. In today's episode, we're going back to the presidency of George Washington, and he's been covered on the show before in many ways. His military victories, how he led the Continental Army to victory, presiding over the Constitution, and forging a new nation. But one aspect that we haven't talked about and is not very well known about Washington is how he involved himself in the establishment of a capital city and how trying to put together Washington, D.C. and making it the capital almost tore the United States apart. Today's guest is Robert Watson, and he's the author of the book George Washington's Final Battle. And he talks about how the country's first president advocated tirelessly for capital on the shores of the Potomac. There was bitter infighting about where the new capital would be, whether it would be in Philadelphia, which if it were, Southerners would fear the abolitionists would have too much power. If it were in the South, Northerners would resent that. And it very well could have led to the dissolution of the United States, a civil war, or just the different states breaking up into their own nations, similar to the fears of when the Articles of Confederation were in effect and the United States simply wasn't strong enough as a republic. Washington envisioned and had a direct role in planning many aspects of Washington, D.C., what it would ultimately become. And in doing so, he created a landmark that gave the country credibility, it united the fractious country, and also created a sense of American identity. Washington died months before the federal government's official relocation, and when John Adams moved into the White House, it was drafty, it was leaking, there was almost no city around it, it was muddy, and it was dirty. But despite that, the vision and influence of Washington live on in the city that bears its name. So what this story does is it throws George Washington's political acumen into sharp relief, and it shows that, yes, he was a great leader, yes, he was a virtuous person, but he knew how to wheel and deal and work political deals behind the scenes, an aspect of George Washington we often don't see. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. It's a great look at the founding period, the American presidency, and the history of Washington, D.C., and I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Robert Watson. Robert, welcome to the show. 
Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm really looking forward to this interview. Before we began, when we were uh, off air, the two of us were discussing Presidential Fight Club, and um, Robert really falls uh, along the lines of uh, where James Early and I uh, entered in that tournament of George Washington's incredible physical stamina, military leader. There was another factor, though, that uh, Robert and I didn't discuss that came up a lot in Presidential Fight Club, which I think is really one of the main qualities of Washington is um, he was supernaturally lucky. And I think that there was an old Roma woman that he saved as a child who cast a spell on him and granted him lifelong luck because that seems to be the entire, basically the theme of the Revolutionary War. Have you ever noticed that in your study of Washington? No question about it. And, uh, you know, Washington came from a, a, a line of very short-lived men. And he talked about it publicly with his close friends and wrote about it. We have his letters surviving where he was very conscious of the fact his father, grandfather, uncles, great-grandfather did not live very long. And that kind of weighed on him. But Washington, fortunately, lived for the time, uh, a long life for the time. And, of course, uh, you know, out in the Western theater, uh, with the Braddock expedition during uh, the French and Indian Wars, in the one engagement that cost General Braddock, the British commander, his life, Washington, we have multiple accounts that he, some say he had three bullet holes through his jacket, some four, uh, but yet he was not hit. Um, so he did seem to have good luck, which is something that you need to factor in when you look back on someone's career. Having said that, though, uh, I agree completely with you, Scott, but that does not diminish the extraordinary integrity and work ethic and some of the other traits that George Washington uh, had in abundance. Well, it's interesting what the topic of your book is, because this is not a well-tread part of George Washington's story, unlike everything that is known from lessons in public school of him leading the Continental Army and presiding of the Constitution and everything he did as president. So for you as a scholar, there's always an issue of selecting a topic and sometimes you choose a topic because it has been neglected or because you don't think that it's um, been told properly or maybe historiographical trends have pushed so far in one direction that it's caused certain topics to be glossed over. What led you to this topic of him trying to create a capital on the shores of the Potomac? Thanks for asking that. Yes. So, you know, all of us, you, me, everybody that loves history, and I write a lot of history books, you know, we all have our focus and our interest. My sweet spot has always been the history that we've missed, uh, you know, the story behind the story or what we get wrong. And of course, uh, anybody that studies American history is a fan of George Washington's and entire forests have been felled to fill all the pages of the books on Washington. But it, it struck me as one of the one of the things that's missing is, of course, um, his role in literally leading the effort and, and facilitating every single facet of it, the building of this capital city, which he saw as not only a goal in and of itself, but a means to another goal, and that was to create a nation. And uh, I taught previously in my career at Georgetown, Washington, D.C. is probably my favorite city in the U.S. I'm a nerd about visiting all the memorials there, and Georgetown University is my publisher. So I was thinking about what we missed on Washington and thinking about my love of the Capitol, and it was peanut butter and jelly, you know, Eureka. Um, and um, I also wanted a, a second uh, uh, objective in writing this book. And uh, like most everybody, I'm a fan of Doris Kearns Goodwin and loved her book on Lincoln, A Team of Rivals, where she really takes everything we knew about Lincoln, but she adds another dimension uh, to Lincoln's leadership and political acumen. I have always felt that 
the standard line on Washington, he was big, he was strong, he had honor, he was courageous, he, you know, he was honest. Yes, yes, no question about it. But I always thought that history and historians were missing two facets of his personality. And we tend to paint him a little simplistically and unidimensionally. And the two are this, Washington was actually a visionary and a bit of a dreamer. And that's something we almost never equate with him. And secondly, he had a formidable set of political skills himself. I wouldn't say he was in the category of a Lyndon Johnson or a, a Bill Clinton or uh, some of these other uh, you know, political geniuses, a Lincoln, but Washington was a political player. And what you see is you know, he, would, he knew when to fold his hand and when to play it. Um, and Washington, um, cognizant, cognizant of that, uh, when he needed to lobby for votes, he did, and I'm here to tell you, he almost always got the votes he needed. So Washington knew how to play politics, and he was a bit of a dreamer and a visionary. And his vision or dream of a grand, glorious, Romanesque, what he called a city for the ages, uh, that was a long time coming. And Washington's vision on where to put it. And what is so remarkable about it is he connects two different goals. He felt that the country lacked... Americans lacked an identity. We did not have an American identity. We really lacked a sense of national pride. Uh, we were not united. Of course, if you were to take a time machine and meet Thomas Jefferson in the 1700s and ask him about his country or his nation, he would say Virginia, the same way someone else would say Pennsylvania or South Carolina. Washington was upset by the factions that were emerging he was concerned about the lack of unity, the lack of a national identity, the lack of an American ethos. And by building a glorious capital city, equidistance between the North and the South, Washington felt that that would help imbue his countrymen with that needed ingredient of a sense of national pride and identity. And you know what? He was right. So uh, that kind of factored into his, his building the capital city and all that factored into my the reason why I couldn't wait to write this book. Can you set the stage for at what time your book is taking place and when he's dreaming of building a capital? Because when I think of Washington, I think of somebody who enters the presidency with almost unlimited political capital, where he's a national hero. He led the Continental Army. He is unanimously elected. There's not even political parties at this time. And he's perhaps the only person who could be the unanimous choice. There's simply no other unifying person, which why he was the proper choice for being the first president. But of course, I mean, no one has unlimited political capital, no matter how powerful they seem. So what was going on during the time your book takes place? So you're spot on. I agree completely with, with your assessment. So when the Revolutionary War ends in 1783, the question the country asked itself was, now what? Uh, and there were even some editorials in some of the more prominent newspapers through in the, the two, three, four years after the revolution ended saying, have we really fought for this? Uh, and that was this. When, you know, we, we defeat the British, but when the British left and loyalists left, they also took with them the financing, uh, the physicians, the bankers, the architects, leaving America with very few, few skilled professionals very little in the way of manufacturing. You know, that mercantilist relationship, the British took our natural resources, of which we had in abundance, manufactured them and sold them back to us. So now what do we do? 
Washington, as you said, was was everything you described. He was a, a I mean, he was ambitious, but a part of him was worried about being president because he had nothing to gain and everything to lose. He already made the pages of history and had this universal acclaim. Washington thought his work was done, but it was not done. With the emergence of factions, we couldn't pay our veterans. The Articles of Confederation uh, in the post-war years proved to be wholly and completely ineffectual, if not out flat out embarrassing. So all these challenges arise in the 1780s, 83, 84, 85, 86. We have Shays Rebellion. Uh, you know, we're ready to spill blood over this. Um, so I pretty much go back to two historical settings, Scott. The first one is 1783. You know, so in 1781, we win the Battle of Yorktown. Washington decisively defeats Lord Cornwallis. This is the big W, the big victory, the big win that he needed. And it's really the last major conflict of the revolution. So from 1781 to 1783, we enter a new phase of the war, one that I describe as a Cold War. The British are hunkered down in New York City, and Washington's army is hunkered down just up the Hudson in Newburgh, near West Point, near where FDR's library is today. And he faces a new challenge with the army, and that is boredom. They're pretty much waiting for two years. It's the longest headquarters that Washington has during the longest places in any headquarters during the war. Boredom. The men are not paid. They're hungry. They're bored. They want to get back to their farms and their families. And of course, back then, if you're not tending your farm, you go back to bankruptcy, unlike today where you would have, you know, some social services or something. Also, bitterly cold winters set in and Washington finds a brand new type of threat in March of 1783 is what we call the Newburgh Conspiracy. General Horatio Gates and others are conspiring against Washington. We are so close to winning the war and now we're going to lose it. So what Washington does is Washington brilliantly at Newburgh um, commands the stage in what he was a building called the temple. He has all the officers gather and he puts them in their place. You know, how dare you uh, uh, do this? You know, we are so close to victory. Uh, this is ungentlemanly. It's unmilitary. Uh, you know, and he asks for one full measure of devotion, one more distinguished proof and example of their patriotism and duty. Uh, and he succeeds in putting down this mutiny. After that, Washington has the realization this new republic is going to be very, very fragile. He has the realization that governing this new republic will probably be harder than fighting the war and winning the war for the privilege of governing it. So Washington begins to realize we need a stronger government. We need unity. Right after that, in March of 1783, that summer in Philadelphia, you have the Philadelphia mutiny when a couple of hundred unpaid veterans and soldiers march on Philadelphia and surround the building that is now Independence Hall, trapping political leaders inside, basically willing to take them hostage. Those inside were worried that they were going to be killed or taken hostage. Um, Washington then realizes even further how fragile this experiment in democracy is, and we need a strong government. So that shapes his thinking. The second thing historically that factors in, I guess, the timeline of my book is where does Washington get these ideas as a young man? I go back to the French and Indian War when Washington had what can only be described as two horrific failures 
one at a place called Jumonville, the Jumonville Affair, uh, the other one at, at the so-called Fort Necessity uh, debacle. This is in 1754 when he's a young, untested, very raw, very naive officer leading troops out near what is today Pittsburgh. And he botches both this, both of, uh, military adventures. But what happens is Washington becomes a surveyor. He helps build a road to the West. When he's out there, he realizes the importance of the Ohio Territory. He realizes the country is going to grow, but he realizes we need a strong government and unity to fulfill all these promises. So his Western adventures as a young man, uh, the bitter experiences at the end of the Revolutionary War begin to shape his thinking about the need for a strong government unity, a sense of national pride. And the answer to Washington is clear, a Romanesque capital city that unites the country. So that's the backstory on this thinking. Hey, everyone, Scott here. We're going to take a very short break for a word from our sponsors. Well, I'd love to hear the political wheeling and dealing that he does, because like you said, you don't think of Washington with that. But I guess you have to have a little bit of Lyndon B. Johnson in you and know how to uh, work behind the scenes, uh, offer cut deals, threat, and as a former spy master, I'm sure Washington knew how to dig up dirt on people. Um, but one thing, uh, just before getting into that, uh, I always love hearing when someone like Washington is imagining uh, the new capital city. I'm sure he was speculating wildly. He came up with a lot of ideas. Were there any favorite ideas of his that didn't happen that you thought were really interesting, such as you hear these trivia bits of, oh, the National Bird of America was almost a turkey. I don't know if that's true or apocryphal or not, but were there any things like that? Turkey. Yeah, Ben Franklin wanted yeah. a turkey. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, Scott, there are. One of, Washington had a couple, I guess you could say, criteria for what this capital would be. Number one, it needed to be by a river because of primitive transportation at the time. And, of course, we know all great cities historically are by rivers. So the Hudson, the Susquehanna, I mean, a number of rivers were in the mix. Uh, Washington wanted the Potomac. One, it was by his house and his property. Two, as a young man, he pretty much canoed virtually the length of the Potomac and actually charted and mapped the river. He knew the Potomac like the back of his hand. Some of Washington's contemporaries even laughed and they said they called it Potomac fever. Washington was obsessed with the Potomac River, because he never really traveled. He made one trip to Barbados, but he had never been to Europe. Washington naively and almost foolishly says, the Potomac is basically the Thames, the Rhine, the Danube, you know, it's the Euphrates. It's all these great rivers from around the world rolled into one. The Potomac's a lovely river, but that's laughable at best. But so one, it has to be by a river and Washington wants the Potomac. And it turns out that Washington's property in the Potomac are basically the waistband, the mid midpoint between North and South. A second thing he wants is it has to unite the North and South. So we can put two check marks there. Uh, and and that, that factors into this. Now, what Washington wants but doesn't get is his original ideas for the president's house, the executive mansion, what we call the White House today. He wanted it to be significantly larger than it is today. And of course, it was one of the largest buildings in the country uh, for years. He wants it to be significantly larger than it is today. He also wanted it to be all marble and basically, you know, the Parthenon, the Acropolis, the, you know, you know, the Colosseum of Rome kind of a thing. But reality sets in and our country is completely bankrupt. We're broke. 
So what he has to do is he has to um, quarry limestone. They paint it white to give it a fake facade. They back it with brick and then uh, put a limestone painting over it to make it look like marble. He has to scale the building down significantly in size. So ironically, when you look at Washington, D.C. today, the original uh, mandate for it in the Constitution was 10 miles square. So that's 100 miles. This puts the city, uh, you know, at the time, bigger than you know, Paris and London and the world's great cultural centers. And of course, it's basically a swamp, a bog, a backwater. So we're going to build Rome from scratch without trained architects, without a budget in the middle of a field and bogs. So Washington was ambitious, to say the least. But reality weighs in and he has to scale back his city significantly. So he was even more grandiose in his thinking than the remarkable city that we have today. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The history of the popes of Rome and Christianity reaches into nearly every aspect of history. In the History of the Papacy podcast, we step over the rope. We dive in to discover more about the people, events, and background that define the influence of the popes of Rome and church, not only on the West, but the world. To start listening now, go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search for History of the Papacy on your favorite podcast platform. I lived in Washington, D.C. for six months on an internship, like many young people do in different careers. And there are definitely charming parts of the city, but I always thought it was a practical joke on the rest of the world's diplomats that you have to live in a swampland, like you said. So 
pretty miserable in the summer if uh, you haven't been to D.C. before. For Sure, it's one of the most humid places on earth, I think, but I love the city. But you're right, there are, and I, I my book is chock full of funny quotes from diplomats around the world who, who were just shocked and aghast when they arrived in Washington. And, you know, some of them, you know, one, one diplomat said something like, fortunately, I've been to Africa or some kind of condescending reference to that. So I can make it in, in this, in this backwater town. And, you know, when John Adams moves into the white house in November of 1800, uh, it is only six rooms built, but he moves into the city and there's, there's no place that, you know, few places to get a bite to eat. Uh, not much in the way of boarding houses, no theater, no culture. Uh, Adams has trouble finding staff. Uh, the roads are muddy. There's construction going on everywhere. Um, you know, so uh, when he moved into the city, he was just uh, just appalled at what he saw. And he writes Abigail kind of a cryptic letter. She was back in Massachusetts saying, the building and the city are in a state to be habitable. We now request your company. So he was... <laughs> understated at best, Abigail arrives and she is flat out, I mean, livid. She can't stand the city. It's a backwater. And Abigail, to her credit, is also shocked because it's a slave city. Uh, the city's built with slave labor. And everywhere she looks, she sees uh, slaves in chains and working. And so it was an affront to her in both ways. So yeah, it was a bog and a field that we turned into the two uh, Romes. So go figure. Right. And there's an episode of the John Adams miniseries with Paul Giamatti. And there's a whole episode when he becomes president that depicts what you just said, where the White House, it looks like it's a large building in the middle of a dirt field. And there are workers and slaves. They have camps and campfires set around it. It's almost impossible to imagine what that would uh, look like back then. Look like back then. Now, Paul Giamatti nailed that role. And of course, the David McCullough book and the writings on it. That was a great series. But yeah, no kidding. Um, uh, Adams talked about just literally mud, not just fields, but mud, the constant sawing and hammering. The interior of the building, it smelled like tar and uh, it, it just reeked. There was uh, They had trouble getting water to the building. He had to dispatch people to go get water and firewood. They couldn't keep the wet, cool White House warm through the fireplace. You know, the roof was leaking. Abigail complained that she had no place to hang her laundry. Um, so, uh, yeah, far cry from where we are today. Well, I'm very curious about the political story of what Washington did, because like you said, I mean, his reputation is, uh, being this virtuous figure, but he knew how to wheel and deal. And when Thomas Jefferson had hatchet men criticizing Washington in the press, Washington as a former spy master was easily able to trace it back to Jefferson. Now he didn't act on it or try to strong arm or anything, but uh, he knows how to work effectively. He dealt with military intelligence. So there's a, a whole other side to Washington that we don't see. So what did that look like for him wheeling and dealing to get Washington, D.C. established? Once again, you're spot on. Yeah, no question. Um, so one of the things Washington knew, and, and a lot of the, uh, the Jeffersonian camp, which would be the anti-federalists, Jefferson, Madison, later Monroe, and those who were opposed to sort of Washington's vision and what became the federalists, the uh, Ben Franklin's, uh, John Jay's, Alexander Hamilton's, John Adams. Um, 
one thing that that they almost tease, some of them tease Jefferson. Jefferson would conspire behind Washington's back, but in the presence of Washington, Jefferson was like a meek child, uh, and Washington knew that. And a lot of times, when Jefferson was pushing his vision of a small federal town, quote unquote, a few acres versus Washington's grand vision of Rome. Washington would talk to Jefferson face to face and Jefferson never disagreed with him face to face. So Washington understood that he could read people like that. He also put the right people in charge. Uh, uh, L'Enfant, the great classically trained French architect and engineer. Uh, On one hand, uh, we didn't have many architects and engineers and L'Enfant was classically trained. On the other hand, L'Enfant had shared Washington's vision for Rome and L'Enfant, like Washington, even sketched out an even more grand vision than what we ended up with. But L'Enfant was the right man to sketch it out. So Washington picked the right people and surrounded himself with the right people. For the White House, he picked James Hoban, uh, the great Irish architect who designed some of the most beautiful buildings in Charleston, South Carolina. So he surrounded himself uh, with absolutely the right people. In terms of the raw politics, on some of the initial votes, for uh, uh, you know the um, the location of the building, the Residence Act of 1790, uh, the uh, debt assumption should the federal government assume Southern states and states' debts, Hamilton's bank bill, and uh, creating a national bank. All these issues that were tied into the Capitol, uh, a lot of them were nail biter votes, and on more than one occasion, they would be two or four votes shy. Washington would sit down and pick the two or four senators that he knew he could flip. And he didn't write him a letter. He didn't dispatch Hamilton. He sat down in front of them face to face. And you, because he knew that they could not say no in, in the presence of George Washington. So he understood his own gravitas and the dimensions of his personality. And in each case, when he needed votes, he picked the right people. And guess what? He was batting virtually a thousand and flipping those votes. On the other hand, uh, when they needed to buy and sell lots, Uh, You know, because there were a few farmers and a few small houses scattered around what became the federal district. When they needed to buy and sell lots, Washington would show up for the sale because he knew if he was there, it imbued the entire project with confidence and people would show up and to see him and, and they felt more confident about buying and selling. He even bought a lot himself. He even personally sold some of the lots. So by him being there, so he recognized that. And it's a cute story where there was one very disagreeable fellow who would, you know, there's always that one guy in the middle of the planned interstate or in the <laughs> that has a piece of property where we want to build the Olympics or the new football stadium who wouldn't sell. And Washington was gracious with him. Uh, they offered him a good price. He dispatched his three-member federal commission to begging. Uh, And Washington said in letters, you know, I'm willing to offer you this. Please do your patriotic duty. But when he wouldn't, Washington writes him and just says, I've taken your house. (laughs) It's gone. So he knew when to lower the boom and when to be diplomatic. Washington let the opponents of his federal city, he let them down gently and gingerly rather than I told you so. So uh, what you find emerging, Scott, is in so many ways, someone who is a bit of a masterful politician, who was very aware of his own influence. And if he needed something done, he showed up. He was not above wallowing in the political mud 
which I think is a side of Washington we just don't see in most other accounts and books of him. Well, I'm interested to see that the long, proud American tradition of eminent domain goes back to the very beginning. So I could see Dwight Eisenhower reading that story and getting a little choked up when he imagines his interstate system. And well, Washington did it, so I can do it too. And let's make it happen. Yeah, that's how you take it out. All right. Well, um, uh, I'd like to know uh, what was at stake here? So let's say Washington wasn't able to do this. He wasn't able to put together a capital that would that could be a consensus choice between North and South. He didn't pour himself into it. And let's just say Washington, D.C. didn't happen. Um, what are some of the negative or dark scenarios and fallout that would have happened if Washington hadn't had done this? Good. Well, I think the that's- punchline for the conclusion of the book is that nothing less than the future of the republic was at stake. Uh, Washington said a number of times that disunion is absolutely eminent and is the worst threat we face. Uh, Washington had a quote where he talked about, I refer to it in the book as the other founding debate. You and I, everybody is familiar with the founding debates over the Electoral College, the Three-Fifths Clause, the role of the federal government, how to elect a president. I mean, all the famous founding debates we all learn about in middle school when we talk about the Constitutional Convention. But I refer to this as the other founding debate. Do we have a capital city? How do we build it? Where is it located? And um, Washington had written that it was, quote unquote, pregnant with difficulty and danger. He felt that to not do this would risk losing the nascent republic. Uh, He wrote about it was the most intense and explosive debates of the entire first session and first initial meetings of the framers. Um, So uh, we think we know that the Electoral College and slavery raised some eyebrows. But according to Washington and a number of other folks, that the capital debates were even more explosive because there were over 30 locations proposed for the capital, from Philadelphia to Baltimore, to Annapolis, to Harrisburg, to, uh, you know, a number, Albany, uh, all across, and everybody had their own parochial interest on where it should be located. The Southerners and the Anti-Federalist, the Jeffersonian faction, they had a stake in the game because they were worried about the capital because the stronger the federal government, the bigger the capital, the, by definition, the weaker the states and the weaker their power. The slavers were worried about it. If it was in Philadelphia, Philadelphia had a large Quaker population and Philadelphia already had laws against slavery and Philadelphia was already creating schools for freed slaves. So if the capital was in Philadelphia, that could risk ending slavery and the Southern slavers were upset about that. If it was too far north, say New York City or or, or um uh, you know, uh, Boston, the balance of power could shift north. So these were all the huge debates that were uh, uh, surrounding this. There was even a debate over whether we should have multiple capitals. Ben Franklin at one point said, maybe for the interim, we just have multiple places and we meet at a different place every time to keep everybody happy. And uh, one member of Congress announced on the floor a, a real fun joke. He said, so this will be like It'll be like the Trojan horse. We'll have to load members of Congress in the horse and wheel at the cities. He said the problem is because it's Congress in it, nobody would want the the horse in their city. So if Washington fails, we literally, and I'm not 
using hyperbole, I'm not exaggerating. If it fails, the Republic might fail. And uh, we have quotes from Washington and a number of other folks. So that's the um, that's the stakes in, uh, in trying to unify this government. Hey, everyone, Scott here. One more brief word from our sponsors. On another hand, another concern of Washington's was America lacked respect and credibility in the eyes of the world. Um, as Ben Franklin would note when he was in France and elsewhere, they viewed us as a bunch of illiterate, you know, frontiersmen wearing, you know, fur. Um, and Ben Franklin even put a fur cap on to play into the joke uh, as he proceeded to then wow everybody with his brilliance and his sense of humor. But um, so uh, Washington even realized that a great capital city would give us a little bit of respect and credibility in the eyes of the world. So those were the um, those were the stakes. And of course, this country fought a war and gained its independence without a permanent capital or a seat of government during the entire duration of it. It would be a full quarter century from 1775 when the war started up until 1800 when Adams moved in before we had a permanent capital. So that's no way to get to start a new experiment in democracy. So the stakes were that high. I had no idea about the proposal of a rotating capital. It's like a city to host the Olympics or for every four years, you get to have that. Yep. That was one of the proposals. Yeah, that was one of them. I'm curious when the discussion of Washington, D.C. is coming up as the city that's a consensus choice between the North and the South. It's in federal land. It's not part of any one state so that the balance of power doesn't tilt toward one state too much. I'm sure there were plenty of critics against this idea for various reasons. Um, what were some of the criticisms that they had against what became this plan for what became Washington, D.C.? Uh, there were a number. Uh, the most prominent one was was funding. How are we going to build a city and ha- literally hack it out of the woods in a bog? We don't have the money to pay our veterans. And of course, you couldn't promote taxes. Initially, the Articles of Confederation lacked the ability to even put the kind of revenue systems in place for it. So that was that was obviously one. Another one that... that uh, I really didn't think of before I started my research and reading all uh, on this was the Chesapeake and Potomac are such wide bodies of water that while they wanted the capital by a river, they worried that it would be easily attacked by foreign enemies because they could sail an armada of warships into the Chesapeake because of the width of this and far up the Potomac because it was such a navigable river and therefore the capital would be subject to attack. And you know what? Lo and behold, August of 1814, during the War of 1812, the British did exactly that, sailed up the Potomac, sailed through the the Chesapeake, and and it happened. So those were some of the um, the concerns about it. The other ones were self-interest and parochialism. Every state, every city wanted their own city to be the capital. And you really saw forming, and in the book, I called it like a nascent chamber of commerce, (laughs) <laughs> where cities would be writing in the newspapers, our town is the loveliest, what great views, we have good weather, we have clean air. You know, they're all trying to attract uh, the capital because they knew it would be an economic boom uh, for the city just you know, by the number of politicians and people that moved to the city and, of course, the construction. So um, there was that parochial opposition to it. What helped Washington was not only it was equidistant between the North and the South, but Virginia and Maryland finally realized that they needed to stop competing against one another. So they both kind of teamed up 
and agreed to donate land uh, to this new capital. And Congress then agreed to accept the donated land from Virginia and Maryland and slap the capital down right in between uh, both of them. Um, and of course, Washington's advocacy would ultimately be uh, the key ingredient to swaying this entire debate because that's what George wanted. And, uh, you know, and, and what George wanted, George got. And when you were talking about the story, it reminded me of a similar case in Turkey. I studied the Ottoman Empire for uh, my scholarly research. And after the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire, with the formation of the Turkish Republic, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk relocated the capital from Istanbul to Ankara, which is historically Angora, uh, a total mudball of a town with a few thousand people, about three hours by driving from Istanbul today. But the point being that he wanted a complete clean break from the past because he thought for the Turkish Republic to succeed, we need a massive reform system and all the inertia and bureaucracy of the Ottoman Empire is going to weigh anything down. So we have to completely break clean of that and relocate there. With Washington doing something similar in Washington, D.C., did he have the same kind of idea that, okay, we can't, whatever parochialism of Boston or Philadelphia, things left over from colonial days, if we're too link, closely linked to that, beyond all the political liabilities of favoring one camp too much, we won't be able to do what we need to do to be able to build up the republic. Was there some idea like that, or was it just more of a consensus choice? That was not the predominant piece of the puzzle, but it was one of the pieces of the puzzle, sort of pressing reboot. Washington talked a lot about what we might say was almost a second rekindling of the revolution, that we seem to have lost that revolutionary fervor and that, that sense of patriotism. And he thought that this project would help uh, renew that. Of course, each city seemed to have its, um, its drawbacks and criticisms. For example, New York City was an obvious choice. Uh, and it was one of, you know, along with Boston and Philly, one of the three really big uh, cities full of uh, uh, culture and, and commerce. Um, but um, New York City, uh, Representative Fisher Ames from uh, Pennsylvania just hated New York City and pretty much took it upon himself to sink and torpedo the project, writing on newspapers that the city was, quote unquote, overrun by hogs, dogs and garbage. Then, um, of course, Thomas Jefferson, carrying the bucket of water for all of the South, tried to torpedo New York City. He had one funny uh, uh, letter that he wrote to Southern leaders saying, quote unquote, spring and fall they never have as far as I can learn. They have 10 months of winter and then a two month short summer. <laughs> so they're trying to torpedo it. Um, Boston was just too revolutionary, too Yankee and too far north. Uh, and a lot of Massachusetts reps kind of angered everybody else. Philadelphia uh, was, was a no-go for the slavers because of its progressivism on ending slavery. Plus, Philadelphia repeatedly was hit by the yellow fever, one epidemic after another. Uh, and the concern was that Philadelphia was often a, a ghost town and a fever town. So each city seemed to have its pros and its cons. So in that environment, it seemed to Washington and others that pressing reboot uh, might be the way to go. So what they did is they made a compromise. New York would be the first capital uh, for a little less than a year, and Washington would be inaugurated there on, uh, what, April 30th, 1789. Uh, uh, and then uh, the deal was for 10 years, 
uh, we would build the capital city and Philadelphia would get to host the interim. So there was enough there to make everybody happy. New York got a piece of the pie and New York's view was they'll never build Washington, D.C. They'll never build this new capital. So they'll come crawling back to us. Philadelphia's view was the same. We're the obvious choice. We have it for nine years. We're building government buildings. It'll never happen. They'll come back to us. Uh, so everybody kind of had um, an ulterior agenda or motive there. And after 10 years, the capital city has opened up. It's not ready, but they did make the 10-year deadline, even though it was more of a construction project than a city. Right. So it did happen. There wasn't the full relocation until after Washington's death. So like you write in your book, this is a long time coming. Well, in um, any book that people write, there's the story of what's happening, but you can always find a link to a larger question, a meta issue that is uh, more of a timeless historical question. And from what you've researched, what you've seen with Washington and the development of Washington, D.C., what stands out to you as a larger theme? Is it to successfully begin a new project, you really have to start from a clean slate? Is it a story of political leadership and consensus building? What was your big takeaway when you looked into this story? I had two. One was uh, faction and political squabbling. Um, we've certainly seen it the last few years uh, in Washington and in all of the states, but it's not new. And the factions and political squabbles back then were just as ferocious if not more so than they are today, and the pettiness in a lot of politicians back then, and the alignments um, as uh, the Jefferson faction, the Hamilton faction, they went fishing for votes, and they were cutting deals probably beyond what Pelosi and McConnell could cut today. So that that eternal uh, political struggle and um, you know, politics, when you look at people like Washington, it's clear that it is the most noble endeavor and it can do it can be a great force of good. But when you look behind the scenes and you pull the curtain back a wee bit, this petty partisanship and petty parochialism is not new. So that was one theme. And the second theme was just Washington's leadership. Uh, you know, Scott, he um, it's his vision. It's his dream. He hires the architects. He recruits the stonemasons and builders. He buys and sells lots. He's on site, on property, surveying the lands as a surveyor, visits the city. He meets with members of Congress. He appoints the three-member commission to oversee it. Washington literally is overseeing every facet of the city. I found several letters from uh, members of Congress at the time and Washington's close allies, like your Henry Knox's, your Alexander Hamilton's, who pretty much used terms like Washington was obsessed. This was his thing. This was his, as I say, his final battle. This was going to be his great legacy, even perhaps more so to his mind than winning the war, being the inaugural or the first president, is this great, glorious city. And, and, and as a tribute to it, the original, one of the original names for the city was Washingtonopolis. <laughs> uh, fortunately, fortunately, they scaled that back to just Washington. And, and the irony was the one thing that Washington did not play the direct leadership role in was the naming of the city. They were some of the most powerful men who've ever lived. They waged war, forged peace, and altered the fates of billions of people. And yet, they were just as human, just as flawed as you and me. They were the presidents of the United States, and they are the subjects of the history podcast, This American President. In each episode of This American President, we explore how flawed men have managed this awesome responsibility. To listen now, 
Go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search This American President on your favorite podcast platform. War has played a key role in the history of the United States, from the nation's founding right down to the present. Wars made the United States independent, kept it together, increased its size, and established it as a global superpower. Hi, I'm James Early, host of the Key Battles of American History podcast. In each episode, I discuss American history through the lens of the most important battles of America's wars. To start listening now, go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search Key Battles of American History on your favorite podcasting platform. Because Washington was always that person, even if he hungered for something, he would stand up and say, I have no desire to serve or no, with great humility, I don't think that's appropriate because he knew the more he acted like he didn't want it and he shouldn't be named for him, the more it gave credence to name it for him. Deep inside, he was absolutely thrilled that his pet project would bear his name. Uh, but of course, as you alluded to, Washington dies uh, uh, December 14, 1799 and doesn't live to see. And then, you know, less than a year later, the city opens. He doesn't live to see the city. That was his dream. His, his, he doesn't see it to its fruition, which is a bittersweet end to this uh, this wonderful story uh, of our capital city. I was trying to think if it were completely left to Washington's devices, what he would have named the city. I don't know. After, is it his brother that he looked up to or some kind of twist on Mount Vernon, something off of chewing tobacco? I wonder... Did he ever suggest that, or do you have a guess on what you think he would have No, he didn't. Uh, now, this is not to say he didn't suggest it orally, but he did not suggest it in print, except to dismiss all the calls for it to be named for him. He always said, no, 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 that's not appropriate. You know, there's a number of things I thought about. Columbia is an obvious go-to. Potomac is another obvious go-to. Uh, and then maybe even something borrowed from ancient Rome or ancient Greece so there's a couple of possibilities, but nothing direct in writing where him saying it's got to be this or that, other than to just dismiss all the talk of naming it for himself. And of course, everybody knew that there was only one name. <laughs> it had to be Washington in some manifestation or another uh, for the city. Even the Jeffersonians uh, realized that was the go-to name. Although I have to say, I really have a soft spot for Washingtonopolis. It sounds like something in the Byzantine Empire. There's a kind of grandeur to it. Well, history nerds like you and me would, would have a soft spot for that. But I think the rest of the country, probably not so much. <laughs> they just think, this is harder to spell. Forget about it. Way too long. Right, right. Well, thanks for sharing all this. And for those who want to check out more, uh, your book is a great window into this period and the founding period, how the American presidency, the first one especially, worked and what it took to make Washington, D.C. happen. Because these things don't just happen. It takes a lot of skill. and. If you don't have that kind of leadership, as you said earlier, then bad things can happen. So there's a lot to this. Scott, it's me who should be thanking you, number one, for the chance to talk about this. Of course, books are like kids. We all want to talk about our, our favorite child, you know. Right. <laughs> Secondly, and in a much more important sense, as history is my absolute passion, I've checked out your podcast. I want to thank you for bringing history to life and doing it in a way that can be easily accessed by the large public. So thank you for what you do to attract people to uh, what you and I love, and that is uh, that is history, the lessons of history. Yeah, thank you very much. I mean, that's something that um, having guests like yourself and others on, people want to learn it. And whatever challenges we're going through, this isn't new. I mean, there are lessons from the past like this, like you just described, and I think that can help us navigate things, whether it's political gridlock, global pandemics, or whatnot. 
And the name of the book is George Washington's Final Battle. So listeners can check it out wherever books are sold. So Robert, thank you for joining us. Scott, thank you. Let's do this again. It was a lot of fun. Absolutely. All right. So that is all for the episode today. Once again, I want to start things off by thanking the spy masters of History Unplugged. I'll explain what that is in a second. Our spy masters include Bill Ivey, Moondoggy from Ohio, Tom from Ohio, Ryan Gillen, Rob from Chicago, Nick Brooks, Michael from New York, Carl from Norway, Josh Reddick, Jennifer French Lee, Jake Carrington, McCraze, Salvador Sanchez, David Santi, Chris C., and Baron Fraser. If you'd like to support the show, there's some very easy ways to do so. First, go to the site halfpricehistory.com. I've worked out an arrangement with a lot of the authors who've appeared on this show, and you can go there and get their books for 50% off. All you have to do is go to halfpricehistory.com and enter the promo code UNPLUGGED at checkout. Second, please leave a review and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player of choice, whether Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or whatever. Third, join our Facebook group. You can go to Facebook and search for History Unplugged. There, you can talk with other fans of the show about recent episodes, what you liked, what you didn't like. Also, I have exclusive content there, such as live streams, where I do live versions of podcast episodes where you can leave feedback as I'm talking, and I will address it on air. Last, and I think this is the best, is to join our membership program, the Knowlton's Rangers. The Knowlton's Rangers were George Washington spies during the Revolutionary War, but it's also the name of the membership program for History Unplugged. If you go to patreon.com slash unplugged, you can join the membership program at three levels. If you join at the scout level, you'll get all 400 episodes of History Unplugged absolutely ad-free and early access to new episodes. If you join at the second level, the intelligence officer level, get all the stuff that scouts get along with bonus episodes. There's currently about 40 of them, including series on Audie Murphy and Operation Long Jump about the Nazi attempt to assassinate FDR, Churchill, and Stalin in 1943. Finally, if you join at the spymaster level, you'll get a shout out to you and or your business at the end of each episode. You get a three pack of hardcover history History books, and you can find out what those are if you go to patreon.com slash unplugged. Finally, you can ask me a question about history on absolutely any topic on earth, and I will research it and devote an entire episode to your question. Probably about 30% of the questions in the archive for the show have been based on these sorts of questions. So there you go. Go to patreon.com slash unplugged to learn more. All right, well, that is all for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hold up. 